All right, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking, we're going to continue our study tonight by looking at Acts chapter 9. Senior superlatives. You remember those? Where the senior class would vote on the most friendly, the best dressed, the most likely to succeed, and so on and so forth. Y'all, you know, I'm sure there were many in your high school. Well, tonight we come to Acts chapter 9, and we come to the conversion of the Apostle Paul, or Saul, as the passage says. I'm going to be using those. Those are the same person, and you're going to hear me use both names, and so don't be confused. But as we come to this passage, if we were going to give Saul and a, a, a superlative, it would be the most unlikely to be saved. I think you'll see what I mean as I read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. This is God's holy word. Follow along with me as I read. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but not seeing anyone. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And after three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus called Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias who will come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show you how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's that phrase that we've seen over and over. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. Let me pray. 
<clears throat> Father, we have a lot to learn from this passage. There is so much that we could talk about. But I pray that we tonight would see the incredible grace of Jesus. Because there is a sense in which uh, this is a story about all of us. Um, our heart uh, was a desperately in need of you and you reached down and you changed us. And for that we give you praise. Father, I pray that uh, we would see you through this passage and that you would melt our heart with the beauty of grace and what Jesus has done for us when we were stuck and dead in our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please bear with me. I feel like I'm struggling here. I've got a cold, so my voice might go, but we'll do our best. We've been looking at this semester the book of Acts. And what we have seen, if you've been here, is how time and time again, Christianity has just mowed over and plowed through one obstacle after another. Last week we saw in our story, we saw that the life of Stephen was being threatened by those who were persecuting the church. And it eventually led to his stoning. And we learned that Saul, who we're reading about now in verse chapter 8, verse 1, was looking and overseeing the stoning of Stephen and actually gave approval for his death. Tonight we come to the conversion of Saul, or as you know, Paul. And what we see is, yet again, the gospel topples through another objection. We see the gospel actually plows through the religious establishment's golden boy, Saul. And what's interesting in this chapter, and really in the book of Acts, if you were to keep reading, you would see that three times we are, to we are told about uh, Paul's conversion. Here in Acts chapter 9, here in Acts 22, and in Acts chapter 26, this conversion gets more ink or press than any other conversion in the entire New Testament. Time and time again, we see Paul recounting the events of his conversion. And the point of this passage is this, to get every one of us to ask ourselves, has this happened to me? Have I been converted? Has what has happened to the Apostle Paul happened to me? Now, maybe not in the same way with lights flashing and those kind of things, but have you been converted by the Holy Spirit? Have you met Jesus? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves as we look at our passage tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at three things in this area of conversion. One, the cause of conversion. Two, the preparation of conversion. And three, the result or consequences of conversion. Look at with me if you have an outline, the back of your announcement sheet, the cause of conversion. Look at verses 1 and 2. Our story begins with Luke showing us the absolute hatred 
of Saul for Christianity. We see here his fanatical opposition to believers. His goal in life, his one goal, was to completely wipe out Christianity from the map. That was his goal in life. He actually hated Christians so much, if you look at the passage, that he went to the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and he asked for permission to go to Damascus so that he could bind up Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be persecuted and eventually executed. But here's what's really going on. If you think about it, Damascus, listen, this is how fanatical and how serious Paul was about this. Damascus was 150 miles from Jerusalem. It took a week to travel there. And so Paul, you get the idea, he was willing to do anything He was willing, I would say, it didn't matter if he had to travel a month. It didn't matter if he had to travel 300 miles. He would go there if it meant getting his hands on Christians. He hated Christianity. Utterly opposed. Going the total opposite way of Jesus. And then look at what happens. He's traveling to Damascus. Little did he realize that his entire life was about to be changed. He approaches Damascus and the passage says, basically, suddenly, out of nowhere, this light flashes down around him. It actually blinds him. He falls to the ground. He's lying in the dirt, probably scared out of his mind. And then he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This great persecutor of the church who was on his way to Damascus and ready to enter with pride and arrogance as he sought out these Christians would now be entering Damascus being led by the hand. Not full of pride and arrogance, but now powerless, now weak, now blind having to have someone lead him in to Damascus. But though he was blind, Paul had seen Jesus and he had known it. He knew he had seen Jesus and that he would never be the same. And the first thing we learn here about Saul's conversion is we see the incredible power of God to come into someone's life and change the hardest of hearts. To take the scales off, the blinders off of someone's eyes so that they can see spiritually speaking. And my question for you tonight is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is this powerful? Do you believe that he can change and save someone like Saul? Yeah, of course, right? That's what we have to say. That's what I say. But here's what happens if I'm honest. If I'm honest, I do really good, and you might be right there with me, really good at giving lip service to passages like this and to statements like, well, of course God can save people like Saul. But the problem is, deep down in my heart, when we peel it all back, I don't think I really believe that. 
I say I do, but deep down I struggle with that because if you're like me, we like to put limits on Jesus and his grace. Sure, we might pray for our siblings. Sure, we might pray for our parents. Sure, we might pray for our friends and say, God, change them, save them. But often do we, we struggle with really believing that God can do it. Because you see, underneath the prayer is this whisper of, yeah, I know you can save people, but I'm not sure you can save them. They're too far gone. They're too out there. I mean, they really hate you, Lord. (laughs) There's no way that you can save them. Who have you given up on? Who is the one person that you are praying for right now? I've heard, you've heard me say this a lot this semester because I think we need to be praying for non-Christians more. Who is the one person that you are praying for to become a Christian? The one person who in your mind is so far gone that there's no hope for them. You should have one person like that that you are praying to come to faith. And this passage encourages us. How so? Think about it. God takes the greatest persecutor the church has ever known and he makes him, if you've read the New Testament, into the greatest missionary the church has ever known. He takes this man who is doing the most harm to the church and he turns him into a man who does the most good for the church. The man who writes over two-thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of God. Who are you worried about? Who in your life, in your family, in your, on your hall, in your fraternity or sorority? Don't give up. Keep praying for them. God is in the business of saving the most unlikely to be saved. The cause of conversion. Secondly, we see the preparation of conversion. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, makes an incredible point uh, about this passage. And he says that most folks think that Saul's conversion was just, boom, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, some way that God just abruptly changed Saul. But when we read the book of Acts, we learn that that's not necessarily the case. Acts chapter 26, verse 14 Paul is standing before King Agrippa and he's given an account of his conversion, of how he came to Jesus. And he adds this interesting detail as he talks about his conversion. And in verse 14 of chapter 26, he says, The Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what a crazy statement, right? What in the world does that mean? Well, a goad was a sharp tool. I didn't know either until I studied this passage. But a goad is a sharp tool that shepherds would use to keep the sheep on the right path. It was like a spear or a sharp tool or a sharp stick. Do you see it? Do you see what is going on? Do you see Jesus tells Saul, 
that he has been giving him little stabs in the heart, little pricks in the conscience, trying to get him to realize the truth of Christianity. And so what that tells us is that Saul's conscience was bothering him long before he hit the long road to Damascus. How so? Well, one way we see that is through the stoning of Stephen. Because your natural thought, I mean, he seems so convinced that he's doing the right thing against these Christians. But I would suggest that there's some insight from the stoning of Stephen That the stoning of Stephen was a goad that God was using to get at Paul's heart. If you look at Acts chapter 7, we see the sermon of Stephen. And that's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And what's interesting is, you think about where did he get that information about Stephen? From Paul. Chapter 8 verse 1, we have this little cryptic statement. That says, and there was Saul overseeing the stoning of Stephen and actually giving approval to his death. You see, Saul had seen it all. He had heard his statement before the Sanhedrin. He was involved in the persecutions. He had seen Stephen actually die. And so here is the picture. Saul saw Stephen die. And as he saw him die and how heroic he was and how amazing his death was and he saw that as he was dying, his face was like the face of an angel, we read in the scriptures. And when he saw that, it sent him over the edge. He couldn't take it anymore because he's looking at Stephen and he's like, could I die like that? He's looking at Stephen and saying, do I have faith like that? Do I have faith like Stephen? Do I have the moral character upon my death and upon my last words to say, I forgive those that are murdering me, which Stephen said if you were here last week. You see, Jesus was stabbing Paul with the goads poking and prodding him in his conscience and in his heart. Even before he hit the road to Damascus. And my question is, has Jesus been stabbing you with his goads? For many of you, this first year of college has been pretty rough. You have done things that you have never thought that you would do. And when you're all alone with you and Jesus, your conscience starts to mess with you as you think about what you've done. You see, the first step in Christian conversion is really to see the pain in your life and the circumstances in your life and the thing, the goads that Jesus is bringing into your life To see that as a way that Jesus is trying to draw you to himself and lead you to him. And the interesting part of this is, is that 
God always normally does that with painful things. Through maybe a divorce in your family. Through being caught in a sin. By failing a class. By not getting the scholarship. By not getting you know, in a certain graduate school, whatever it might be. Why does God often use painful things in our lives to draw us to himself and to get us to come to him? Well, unfortunately, the reason why he does that is because that we're, we're so stubborn. <laughs> and he has to do that to often get our attention because we don't listen well. And we want to be self-sufficient. And the only way Jesus can normally get our attention is to bring us to the end of our rope. You know it's true. It's true in my life. A friend once told me that Jesus doesn't just bring you to the end of your rope. He actually pushes you there. Why? Because he wants you to give up hope and everything else but him. How is Jesus stabbing you with his goads? And how are you kicking against them tonight? Are you kicking against them? Is God at work in your life and yet you are fighting it and kicking against it? If you are, you're only hurting yourself. The cause of conversion. The preparation of conversion. And then finally... The results of conversion. Look at chapter 9 verses 10 through 19. One of the results or consequences of conversion is you have a new relationship to others. The interesting thing in this passage, if you notice, God never let Saul go at the Christian life alone. Look at the text tells us that there was this disciple at Damascus named Ananias. God tells Ananias to go and to reach out to Saul to take him in, basically, and to heal him. Look at verse 13. It's interesting that Ananias has a problem with this pretty much right off the bat. Look at what he says. He's not so sure about this Saul character. He basically says, wait a minute, God, isn't this the guy that's been killing all these Christians and that has come to Damascus to kill more Christians? And you want me to go to him and basically love him and take him in and heal him? Here's what we learn about community. We don't need to make the mistake of thinking that the church is going to have, or a Christian community is going to have an easy time bringing in folks that don't fit. Did you hear that? One thing this shows us is that we don't need to deceive ourselves and think it's going to be easy to bring people into community that don't fit. And what we see here is that even these people had a hard time bringing in this madman named Saul. It was a struggle. It was hard. Life in the church and life in community is often messy and often very difficult. But look at verses 17 through 19. What did Ananias do? 
He struggled with this, rightly so, but he obeyed God and he went. He went and he embraced Saul. And look at what he says here. What does he call Saul? What does he call him? Brother Saul. Those are probably, could be, the first words that Saul has heard from another Christian. Ananias has probably had friends and family members that have been killed by Saul in these persecutions. And yet his first words to him were, Brother Saul. He says, we're family now. Me and you. And I'm going to love you as hard as as that might be. Think about the impact. Stay with me. Think about the impact that that had on Saul. Here he had killed all these Christians, and yet here's Ananias saying, Brother Saul, basically welcome to the family. Secondly, we see another result of conversion is suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all those who want to, live, to, want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, not may be, will be persecuted. And we see that exact same thing here in this story. You know, this is a good story. It gets a lot of press in the Christian community. And we often look at it and we see the happy ending. And we think, oh, this is so great. Here the persecutor is now the great missionary of the church. And we talk a lot about Paul going to take the gospel to the nations and getting his sight back. And we glance right over verse 16. Look at verse 16. So that we can get to the good stuff. I don't know about you, but I don't like verse 16. Paul, come to Jesus, and then it says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. Woo! Let's go. Who wants to sign up? Take that message. Can you imagine getting that response? Hey, come to Jesus and suffer. You know what we would say? No thanks. But that was the message. Come and look at how much you must suffer for my name. Here's what I want you to see. Saul had problems before he became a Christian, and he had problems when he became a Christian. It didn't just automatically clear up all of his suffering, all of his problems, all of his heartaches didn't just magically go away. But here's the difference. Now he stood as a Christian He had a life that was worth living. He understood that the difficulties in his life now had purpose because he was walking with Jesus. That meant there was eternal rewards and he had eternal perspective because he knew that his suffering was no longer meaningless but that it was accomplishing a purpose and would one day lead to eternal glory. Those who don't know Jesus and aren't walking with Jesus, they live and they suffer for a few years of happiness while we as Christians suffer for an eternal glory. And that was the difference now in Saul's life. It wasn't that he suffered and then once he became to Jesus, all his problems were solved. 
That's not what we see here in this passage. When we face our struggles and trials, we must keep that in mind. How can we do that? How do we live that way and suffer well? Well, look at verse 4. Back up with me. The Lord says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his response, you can't really get in the feel of it, but it's almost humorous here. It's as if Paul is saying, who are you? <laughs> who, who are you? I'm not persecuting you. I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting Christians. Why are you accusing me of this? That's basically the nature of his tone there. And then here Luke gives us great insight into the persecutions and sufferings that we deal with. And here's the insight. When you suffer, when you are persecuted, Jesus takes it very personally. That's what we see in this passage. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Last point. When you face your struggles and your trials, when you stand for Jesus and you undergo suffering and persecution, you're not alone. He is with you. He enters in. You know what it's like when you have a good friend who enters into your pain? Where you just kind of feel like they understand whether they sit and weep with you or cry with you or hug you. You know what that feels like? That's what we kind of get from this passage. That's what Jesus does with us. And so the next time that you're struggling and suffering and wanting to throw in the towel on this Christian life thing, you need to take courage. You need to have strength in the fact that Jesus is standing with you no matter how hard the difficulty may be. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that your